0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, August the 6th. I don't like to end the week on a dour, dark, depressing note, but the headlines are increasingly um, depressing, increasingly uh, bleak, uh, perhaps even apocalyptic, when it comes to nature and the environment. Uh, every day seems to bring more bad news. The news today is that dead zones are increasing along the the coasts. We're destroying the nature in our in our oceans. Uh, last month was the worst year on record for wildfires all over the world. The world is burning up, or nature is burning up. Fires are ravaging southern Europe. They're ravaging my state. California every day seems to bring the destruction of another town. Uh, meanwhile, we learned today that climate change could devastate emperor penguins, another of the species that Uh, We are consciously or unconsciously destroying through our um, environmental apocalypse. Meanwhile, what's the government doing? Old Uncle Joe Biden, what he's doing is saying by 2030, uh, he's going to phase out gas cars or half of them will be phased out. I'm not sure whether there'll still be a world or at least a natural world in 2030. Uh, My guest today on the show has written, I I think, a really important new book. It's called Losing Eden. She's a UK-based writer, um, Lucy Jones and Thinker. And uh, she begins her book, uh, Losing Eden, um, with um, a vision of the 22nd century in which nature has essentially disappeared. It's a very depressing beginning to a marvellous book, in some ways an uplifting book, in some ways a very depressing book. Uh, Lucy, wh- why do you begin the book, Losing Eden, uh, in such a bleak way, imagining that nature has essentially been destroyed?
1: Hmm. Yeah, so the fictional prologue, um, it was actually, it's a it's as as you might um have guessed it is a nod to rachel carson's silent spring which starts with um a dystopian kind of fictional imagining of a world without without birds um and so so formally i was kind of nodding to to that book and to her who you know she she was sounding that warning wasn't she in the 60s um and i I wanted to start with um, this character, Zena, and her grandmother, and it, I'm imagining it kind of a hundred years in the future. And the only um, the only way they can experience nature is through um, a technological nature screen. So Zena goes to her grandmother's house um, and she watches and she looks at birds um, kind of on a screen. Um, and I mean, obviously it's, there wouldn't be much of a planet if, if it got to that point if there was no um no creatures or animals that kind of spin the web of life for us um but it felt like a um a way of kind of bringing a bit of a human angle to to all the science that i was about to kind of explore and and, and investigate um and i suppose i was thinking personally quite a lot about um, I'd recently become a mother, I was also kind of reconnected with my own grandmother's. And I was thinking um, deeply every day about the future, you know, what the future would be like for my young children. Um, And so it was a way of expressing that in at the beginning of the
0: book. The subtitle of the book, uh, Lucy losing Eden is our fundamental need for the natural world and its ability to heal body and soul. You're right. It's a it's a very well researched book, um, backed up by a lot of scientific evidence, of empirical evidence. You've mastered the the literature, but it's also a deeply personal book about your own narrative, um, about your your very dark, dismal teenage, late teenage years, uh, and how you, in some ways, perhaps reinvented or saved yourself through nature. Um, Tell tell me that story, uh, Lucy, of 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 how you fell prey to addiction and how that was connected with your alienation from nature.
1: Sure. So, I guess like most people, um, I I was quite connected to the natural world as a child. Um, I was fortunate to have opportunities to play in wild places in Scotland, and I grew up at a of leafy boarding school in England, so I was quite privileged to have um, areas that I could roam in. So as a kid, I, I, I was I was really into bugs and and birds and so on. But as a teenager, I I kind of nature wasn't very cool in the nineties. You know, people it wasn't like a, a hobby that my peer group put into. Um, and for for various reasons, I started drinking quite heavily as a young teenager. Um, which became a kind of crutch throughout my teenage years and um 20s um I was working as a journalist in London um at the Daily Telegraph and then I moved into music for a bit and then into science um and I just kind of was brought to my knees um with addiction at about the age of 27 and at that time I was living a very um kind of urban indoor life in london um my kind of restoration and uh way of managing stress would be to to be going out all the time and 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 that kind of that lifestyle of self medicating through alcohol and substances um and you know often on a weekend i wouldn't really see daylight and i was working you know long hours and stuff the culture was such that i was very very disconnected from the natural world um you know, the summer meant festivals, the winter meant a new coat. It was I had no idea of, of, of what was going on in the in the natural world around me. Um, and then my my addiction issues brought me to my knees. I found psychiatry, psychotherapy and support groups are really helpful. The kind of conventional conventional therapies um, to help me recover from um, the depression, anxiety that was kind of underneath the addictions. Um, but then I started to go running because I knew that that could boost your mood which was in early sobriety when I was trying to study my emotions and kind of ground myself and um, I started going running in Walthamstone Marshes which is a, a big open space um, in East London it's kind of a real oasis of of sky and, and trees and northeast and London yes yeah northeast London exactly and um instead of running I just found myself slowing down and looking around me for the first time since I was a kid and wanting to spend time um, looking at the coots and the moorhens or the heron and listening out for water voles and looking at all the insects and um, I'd I'd go there daily I was looking for things to do in early sobriety and I was kind of starting my life again almost and afterwards I would feel very very um, profoundly soothed and calmed and the kind of angry um, self-critical thoughts were quietened um, and uh, I felt kind of newly connected to to the world um, and the effect of that, this was about 10 or so, almost 10 years ago, was so powerful that I wanted to investigate exactly how and what was happening, how was this happening? You know, I kind of had this vague notion as, as we all do that nature was in some way good for us, but... What did that mean? How did it affect my brain? How was it affecting my nervous system? Um, and it seemed then quite a weird thing to do. And when I started researching and saying to people, I'm writing a book about nature and mental health, people were kind of go, what? You know, now it's a, it has been a lot more in the kind of cultural narrative for the last few years or so. But it did feel then almost quite a kind of, I suppose, in my, my urban um, peer group, quite a weird thing to do. Um, and, of course, then as I started to research, um, the science explained what was happening and uh, it was pretty mind-blowing.
0: You, uh, you came on the work um, of the great uh, American biologist Edmund O. Wilson, better known as E.O. Wilson, and his theory of biophilia, his hypothesis. Um, do you think that this is the core? Do you think that Wilson through perhaps in some ways a uh, tragic coincidence in his own life stumbled on this essential truth. Are you a, uh, a, a biophiliac if that's the right word? Mm-hmm.
1: It's a great question. Um, I think I kind of I go in and out of that. Sometimes it seems to me that maybe
0: you could uh, be- before you maybe you, def- you could define what Wilson's biophilia means
1: yeah sure so um wilson wrote about the biophilia hypothesis in, in the 80s and and it's a hypothesis that because um humans spent 99% of our evolutionary history in the natural world um that we have an innate affiliation and a kind of um a drawing towards um aspects elements of the of the natural world um he describes it as a kind of cellular genetic um um need a need for the rest of nature um and he he backs up his hypothesis by um giving evidence such as the the patterning across cultures and countries of how people um are you know bring bring elements of the natural world into their homes or their dwellings um you know in europe we bring a christmas tree in, in into the in, the in the winter or we'll put a screensaver of like a beautiful waterfall or something on our computers um so yeah it's the idea that we have this innate genetic need to to affiliate with the with the natural world and i mean to be honest when i was when i was starting to think about this idea um i looked at my own life and 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 that of people around me who wouldn't really go to the natural world for their restoration, you know, and and would rather go to gigs or clubs or museums and watch Netflix and go shopping. You know, there's obviously a lot of ways of um, repairing ourselves from from the stresses of life. Um, But the more I, I think about it, particularly in the context of the pandemic, I think the last year and a half, um, where we have seen um, a kind of outpouring, a kind of renaissance of love for the natural world, where people have reconnected again quite quickly. Um, you know, with 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 being outdoors, with gardening, with growing things. Whereas before, I might have thought that biophilia might be quite dormant in, in lots of people. I think if it is dormant, it's often just kind of underneath the surface, um, and that, in fact. The problem is that is the lack of opportunities to commune with nature and, and the kind of paucity of, um, um, yeah, access access to the natural world. But if people are kind of given the chance, then most people will get the positive benefits from it.
0: We had another Lucy on the show recently. Lucy, uh, she actually teaches at University College London. I know you're a graduate of, of that excellent university. Uh, She wrote a book called uh, Losing Our Minds, What Mental Illness Really Is. I can't actually remember whether she touched on biophilia, but she certainly speaks of the increasing ubiquity of mental illness. In in your view, how central is the increasing prevalence, perhaps the, the epidemic nature of mental illness with our alienation from nature, with the fact that we are one way or the other, probably all uh, somehow, uh, whether we know it or not, um, committed to, to 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 nature.
1: I think it. I want to read that book. It looks really good. Um, I think that it's very difficult to kind of measure that and and answer it in any kind of quantifiable way. But I think that what I've learned from spending so much time in the nature and health literature is that um there's such when you walk into a natural space so you walk into a kind of wood or a forest or um you're by a river or, or a sea there isn't just one interaction that's happening between your mind and and the rest of nature there's potentially myriad um myriad interactions from how the diversity of microorganisms might be affecting your gut, which has a link with um, the brain and thus mental health, um, with how the chemicals emitted by trees called phytoncides um, can lower your blood pressure, from how fractal shapes, which you might see, which are all over the place in nature, have been found to activate areas of the brain involved in relaxation and calmness, and and therefore can lower our stress. From how birdsong can lower blood pressure, so I think we can say um, with certainty that the the scientific evidence now shows that unequivocally, when we spend times in, in spend time in nature, we can recover from stress quickly and more completely. Um, and we know that it has. It has impacts on the brain um, involved in rumination and brooding, which is associated with depression and anxiety. Of course, it's really important to say, and I do I do make this point in the book that um, I'm in no way saying go to nature and you're going to heal your mental illness. That hasn't been my experience. Of, and, and that would be a ridiculous thing to say, of course, I've always personally needed um, psychiatry and psychotherapy as well as um. well as connecting with with the living world but we also know that um nature-based therapeutic interventions for people with mental illness um mental health problems can be extremely powerful horticultural therapy um uh and wilderness therapy woodland therapy this is a growing movement and the evidence shows that it, it can really help people so I mean, there's there's so many ways of answering this question. I will just make one more point, which we can't really talk about nature and health at the moment without talking about the climate crisis and mm. um, the biodiversity crisis, and of course, what's happening where where you are, um, Andrew, is so um, so terrifying. Um, and we often think about, I think, kind of nature and mental health as being really separate from the climate crisis and the nature crisis. But it's all really interconnected, you know. The way um, climate climate change is a symptom of um, the the kind of disease of of humans separating from nature, and the way we've kind of um, positioned ourselves as uh, kind of you know human exceptionalism as, and as as not needing nature, not part of it. And I think that whereas at the beginning of my journey, I might have thought it was kind of kooky and off the wall to say that. Um, there's this kind of subconscious planetary um, human crisis and psychological crisis in response to the planetary crisis. Now, I'm not so sure that I think that's kooky. I think that even on a subconscious level, um, the, 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 the fact that the Earth is dying may well be affecting us collectively, psychologically, even if we are in denial about it
0: know yeah, well, I had a i have another show called the regenerate forum focusing on, on these issues more broadly and it's clear that there needs to be a systemic response a couple of the guests we had on the show both i'm not sure if you're familiar with them I'm sure you know the work of Isabella tree who has rewilded her farm in southern England Joel salatin is a leading figure in the regenerative farming movement um, how profound you know when you when you think of trees rewilding experiments or regenerative farmers like Salatin, how profound do we need the response to be? Does it need to be systemic? It's not just about recycling our newspapers or, or driving a, a, an electric car, is it? Um,
1: no, it seems quite clear to me that we need um, really major systemic and, and structural change for so many different reasons. You mentioned Isabella Trier and she's absolutely fantastic and she's done an amazing um thing rewilding her farm in southern England. And what she's done um as as you know is she's shown that by kind of just stepping back, you know, as uh, uh as our uh, as we humans find it quite difficult to do, by stepping back and allowing nature to um to to recover and regenerate and restore um it happens really quickly and rewilding is is actually quite a simple thing to do you just kind of step back and you allow nature to flourish um i'm having something on a very very much smaller scale um happening in my town where i live in at the moment we're trying to rewild a tiny Where is there.
0: that uh, it's, um, um,
1: Lucy it's Basingstoke in Hampshire yeah um yeah. we're trying to rewild a very small area but um it's it's interesting how the systems and structures um, are so so kind of such obstacles and such barriers to saying let's just leave it for the insects like we don't need this small space let's just allow. What would that them.
0: mean? Rewilding Basingstoke? What 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 would that? What does it actually involve?
1: Well, it would mean allowing. Um, uh, amenity mown grass to be uh cut once a year maybe it would be so we have these these regular cuts which take away all the flowers and the plants which um as you know we need for pollinators and other invertebrates so so they're they're cut throughout the year to satisfy the cultural preference for neat tidy mown lawns and i mm. think need to put that in the bin and and evolve past it get over it and remember that you know this is an insect apocalypse and um by our obsession with manicured lawns is 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 affecting it's affecting the extinction crisis so so rewilding a town like where i live in would would look like that allowing nature to thrive planting in ways that um uh encourages species rich and biodiverse habitats not using any pesticides um being better co-tenants of the town it's not just for humans it's for yeah it's that co-tenancy
0: which um i think you share with isabella uh last year we had the nature writer carl safina on the show he has a new book out he's he's spent his career writing about non-human species his new book is becoming wild, how animal cultures raise families, create beauty and achieve peace. Um, To what extent is our crisis one in in E.O. Wilson's term of separating ourselves from every other species? Is one of the fixes, one of the solutions to recognize that we are not either superior or separate from other species?
1: I would say so. Um, I think that you see this estrangement and this disconnection kind of across the board um I've got very young children and one of them's about to enter the school system and um you know it's so clear to me now that even though we now na- we have this vast nature and health and children and nature and health literature where scientists across the world um and of course isn't it interesting that we need science to prove this to us when I think a lot of us intuitively know that we need nature more. Um, but we have this this vast evidence base now, which shows that uh spending time in, in the natural environment affects us from our heads to our toes and children need it um for, for so many reasons. But you know, we coop children up indoors. They spend, I think it's 12,000 hours um over their kind of education history in a in a classroom and yeah one
0: of the anecd- one of the lovely anecdotes in the book which i've actually seen um in life as well is the enjoyment kids have in um eating soil
1: yeah yeah so i noticed that um my my baby daughter liked to eat soil and um it, it got me thinking about what, what why that might be and, and i discovered that babies apparently across the world eat soil um, and concurrently, I started gardening for the first time and realized that I'd get such a buzz, kind of a, like a natural high off of gardening. Um, and I, I started doing some digging and I saw this post on a Facebook group saying um, gardening. There's a microbacteria in the soil, which is can work like an antidepressant. And I thought at the time that sounds I was very skeptical and cynical about that. Um, but I delve into it, and there is this microbacteria called M. Vaki, which is um, which lives in soil, which has been found in in many robust studies to have antidepressant-like effects um, on the brain. So, if you like gardening or if you like growing things, that might be why you get a buzz afterwards. Um, and what I think is really interesting and and um, and kind of mind blowing is that you know that's just one microbacteria that scientists have looked at how it interacts with the human mind imagine imagine how many more than other beings old friends as they're called um you know the the old friends that we evolved with over over our evolutionary history um imagine how many other interactions there might be happening between us and the natural environment that we don't we don't yet know about
0: you mentioned rachel carson um lucy uh There's an ongoing debate, I think, um, on, shall we say, the environmental left or the progressive, uh, the green uh, progressives about the role of capitalism in all this. Uh, We've had a number of shows. We had Jason Hickel on the show, uh, who's a British-based advocate of degrowth. We had the Surrey University uh, environmentalist Tim Jackson talking about post-growth life after capitalism. You've talked about systemic change, how deeply rooted in our economic systems does that need to be? Do we need to get as 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 Tim Jackson says, do you think we need to get beyond capitalism? Is capitalism itself the essential cause not just of this environmental apocalypse but this um epidemic of mental illness?
1: It's a big question and something i I, I think about every day. I think that um the, the idea of finite growth on a planet with infinite growth on a planet with finite resources is just absurd, isn't it? I mean it's it's not gonna end well for anyone. Um and excessive and unfettered um capitalism has so many negative effects on life, on communities, on on kinships, um Uh, on our minds on children I think one of the one of the damaging effects that that I think maybe is a bit overlooked is the way um we forget that in the natural environment um there are so many free gifts that there is you can you can go to the woods you can go into the forest um and you don't need to spend any money and and you can receive from the earth um in a way that our culture doesn't really kind of value i think there's in, immense value outside um that in our kind of distraction through through I, mass consumerism and screens i see it myself i see it in my children um we we can get so hooked in and distracted by um being part of the kind of ultra capitalist machine that we forget that just outside the door if we really tune in and and and, and pay attention that there is transcendence there um that can be deeply deeply satisfying and fulfilling through the life course um i think through through losing Eden I move about halfway through the book into thinking about nature and the mind and more of a kind of psychoanalytic or even kind of eco-spiritual way of you know talking to people and interviewing people about how nature can affect you through different um or can be a kind of comfort and a refuge in different parts of your life um so I mean it's a kind of indirect answer to your question I, re- I really want to read that Jason Hickel book too um but yeah, I, I, I think that we have to we have to we have to move past it and and find value in the natural world. Not in a natural capital way, though. I don't like that, and I see how it can be um, in, inevitable. I don't know if you guys have the term natural capital. If that's part of your environmental.
0: Um, no, I, I maybe we need to do something on it. Um, we had. Um... Another very well-known environmental activist, Erin Brockovich, on the show recently. She, of course, has the movie about her. She's written a book, Superman's Not Coming, suggesting that the fate of the world lies in our hands. We also had the young anti-plastics activist, the teenager Hannah Tester, on the show. She has a new book out, Taking on the Plastics Crisis. And she quotes Robert Swan, the Arctic... um, uh Explorer, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. Uh Testa has her laws of Rs, her five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. Um is that a summary, Lucy, of your philosophy? Given we can talk systemically about ending capitalism, about rethinking the nature of of things, of our relationship to nature, but we got to start somewhere. Um, given given the crisis that we began with, given the apolo- apocalyptic scene that you end your book on, uh, sorry, that you begin the book on, and you also end the book on, h- how do we get out of this concretely from today or tomorrow? How do we begin to escape the catastrophe, the destruction of nature, which we have? uh collectively achieved over the last 250 years
1: um so so in the prologue Zena asks the granny why nature ends and she says um because we didn't love it enough and and we forgot that it could give us peace um and in terms of those R's, i would say that raising awareness is one that i feel quite strongly about um and falling in love with the natural world um i think is very potent and that will start with education and with children um and giving kids a chance to love nature because um you're not going to save what you don't love um if you don't love trees why would you save trees um and there is this this kind of forgetting and overlooking that we have in our society at the moment where we just treat the rest of nature as trash and you know we just extract what we want and um you know we don't really care what happens to insects and um i i feel quite strongly that that love is <laughs> I sound like a complete hippie but um love is what will galvanize people and what i wanted to do with losing eden was was think about um uh it in quite a in quite a human-centered way, how we we forget what we can actually um, be given from the natural world. Um, and I think awe and wonder are really good, really important parts of that. Um, so uh, the science of awe was an area that I really loved um, researching, which is led by Dasha Keltner. Um, and it turns out that obviously we all know that feeling awe is nice and we all want to feel awe but actually um, experiencing awe can have measurable um, effects on our bodies uh, on our levels of inflammation which has implications for our immune system and so on um, and even on our brains Um, and I think that if we give um, children and and we seek awe and wonder in the natural world we get that kind of positive feedback we fall in love with it again we realize that our planet is magnificent um and and life as we know it is so in peril um i feel that that is is the kind of driving force that might might help help, well
0: you're uh, lucy's new book losing eden uh, our fundamental need for the natural world and its ability to heal body and soul is indeed what she's talking about. I think it's a it's a book in awe of nature, but it's not a i mean, it's partly a love story, but it's partly a scientific investigation. Uh, I've been reading it for the last few days. It's a really sensational book. I think it's going to be uh, one of the the major new books of the year. Congratulations on the book. It's a as I said, it's a, it's a must read because it's personal, it's scientific, it's poetic, it's beautifully written. Um, in addition, uh, you are in Hampshire at the moment, Lucy. Uh, wh- what else should people be reading in these strange times as we continue to destroy nature uh, and yet at the same time, not even sure if we're allowed out? What what What's on your reading list?
1: Um, so I'm sure lots of your um, viewers will have read this already, but... Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass um, is a really incredible book. This was a kind of Bible to me over the writing of Losing Eden. So, Robin is um, a a teacher, a bryologist, a botanist, um, and she's also part of the Potawatomi tribe. Um, And this is the most beautiful book about um, where she blends indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge and the teachings of plants. I've read it multiple times. I've listened to it as well, and it has—it's the medicine, I think, for what we need to heal our relationship with the land.
0: Well, perhaps you can help us get uh, get her on on the show. I'd love to have her. She's wonderful. Well, uh, Lucy Jones, uh, your book, as I said, uh, "Losing Eden" is really a wonderful read—a must-read. It's very short, but as I said, it's packed. It's poetic it's apocalyptic, but it's also hopeful. Congratulations on the book. Keep well, keep writing, and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. It was great to chat.